When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a hard fact of life that life can be hard, and that might sound like bad news, but the good news is that therapy works, and BetterHelp can help you find a therapist to do what you need to do to stay on track. Therapy is whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work. Whatever you need, BetterHelp can help. I use therapy from time to time to help me sort through challenges, emotions, or just to ensure that I'm on track for the things that are important. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. And special offer to Man God Law listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash ManGodLaw. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash ManGodLaw. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob, freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan about man and God and law. What are the greatest friendships in the history of rock and roll? The boss and the big man, Lennon and McCartney. Frenemies Mick and Keith, maybe Joni Mitchell and Prince. Bob Dylan, Sancho Panza, Bobby Nurwith just passed. But who else were Dylan's pals through thick and thin? He called Lenny Bruce the brother that he never had and praised Johnny Cash Merle Haggard and Jerry Garcia up unto the heavens. This episode, we've got perhaps Dylan's sweetest friendship and also a brother, an actual brother, a a brother of the Wilbury kind. That's right. George Harrison as a seeker, as a peerless peer, and as a pal to lend a hand. Bob Dylan and George Harrison. Their friendship is the topic of this episode. Our guest to talk about Dylan and a man who once said he preferred to call him Zimmy is Seth Rogovoy, a writer perhaps best known for his work with The Forward, to which he has been contributing mostly on culture and music for over 30 years. He's also the author of Bob Dylan, 
prophet, mystic, poet. Published by Scribner in 2009, a full-length analysis of Dylan's life and work through a Jewish lens. And Seth's next book is Within You, Without You, Listening to George Harrison. It's due from Oxford University Press in autumn 2023. I am going to read it, and that's one of the many reasons he's here. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff, host of this podcast, Bob Dylan About Man and God and Law, and author of the book About Man and God and Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan, available now wherever fine books are sold. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 3. Within You Without You, The Tale of Bob Dylan and George Harrison. Of all of the artists, how did you land upon George Harrison as being the focus of so much time and research and thought? Yeah. Well, you know, for many years, I resisted the Beatles. I was so into Dylan and his direct or indirect successors like Lou Reed, Bruce Springsteen, um, that in a way, I, you know, obviously I was familiar with the Beatles because we all were. And, you know, I'm of an age where, although I didn't follow them as they were happening, shortly after uh, I was of an age where I certainly became familiar with most of the music, but I really set it aside for a long time and uh, didn't take it seriously. But then I had this very patient friend who was an avid uh, Dylan fan and uh, also an author, Dylan author, but also a huge Beatles fan. And, and he would always, he was very patiently like saying, you know, you'll get around to it. You should, you should listen to them. And I guess it was about, let's see, maybe... 12, a dozen years ago, maybe a little more, not much more. The uh, Beatles record company, I assume it was EMI or Capital, put out a, a, a box set of all of the original Beatles studio albums. And, and I got that. And I started listening and listening. And obviously, you know, it sparked in me the joy of the Beatles music, which is what it sparks in everybody. So it did, I did reevaluate the Beatles and, and, and hold them in much higher esteem than I had earlier. But there was also something else that really drew me in. And that was, I mean, I, I knew enough about the Beatles to know that I didn't really like John Lennon as a person based on what I had learned about him and read about him. I mean, you know, he's very controversial and, and he had a lot of, at least the way what we've been told, he had a lot of 
bad habits. But what I heard, and more and more as I listened over the years, what really jumped out at me when I listened to their music was I heard, I mean, take a step back. Obviously, to the greatest extent, the Beatles were a vehicle for the songs of Lennon and McCartney. Um, some they actually wrote together, many they wrote separately, it was all credited to the two of them. Um, and I understood that, but in spite of that, when listening to the recordings, I heard a whole other voice, and that was the voice of George Harrison as certainly as a guitar player, but also in the this along with this came learning about just what went on behind the scenes as a innovative musician and arranger, because it wasn't just that he was a deft guitarist, say like a like people say Eric Clapton is, or like people say Jimi Hendrix was, or or any number of guitar heroes. What I heard, especially in the, the earlier years of the Beatles, the first half, say, of their eight-year recording period, you know, they were together for much longer than that, um, I just heard their music being driven by George Harrison's guitar. And again, by that, I don't just mean the notes he was playing, I mean the composition. So yes, these were Lennon and McCartney songs, but George Harrison added so much and was so essential to bring these songs alive with his, his guitar fills and riffs uh, and licks, which were never flashy, always served the songs themselves, but really ran through them to a, a huge extent as almost a musical skeleton. So Leonard McCartney wrote these songs, which means they wrote the melodies, they, you know, they had the chords, um, but then when it came time to go in the studio and to bring them to life, I mean, obviously they were all great musicians to, to different extents and in different ways. Ringo Starr, probably, you know, as much as any of them. And eventually Paul McCartney, just a, a genius at so many different musicians. John Lennon, perhaps less so as a, just strictly as a musician. But George's contribution just seemed to me, in other words, you know, without George Harrison and Ringo Starr, Lennon and McCartney could have just been any great songwriter, any great songwriting team. I don't mean to diminish it at all, but to bring it to life on record. I think George Martin, and I think, you know, Lennon and McCartney both knew and that's why they, they brought him into the group early on when they were still the quarrymen um, back in Liverpool. He just added so much and, you know, to the point that they turned to him throughout the, uh, their recording life and years um, and relied on him to provide 
and I think George Martin, their producer, had a, had an important role in this. They they could they could lay down the song that that Lennon and McCartney wrote, but then they knew it needed something else. It needed those fills. It needed those riffs. It needed those intros, which Lennon and McCartney often did not include in what in what they brought in and they would turn to George Harrison and for uh for some kind of intro whether it be the um that kind of flamenco acoustic guitar Paul McCartney talks about this all the time of uh the beginning of and I love her um or or any number of countless songs that begin with a catchy guitar hook and and riding through the song again not drawing attention to itself but tying it all together so, so you you came into the beatles then and you heard the so so-called silent beetle that was really that was for you that was really the hook i mean that's that's what you're drawing you you were drawn in to really go into the music is what you're saying yes Yes. And then, of course, the more and deeper I got into it, the more I appreciated George Harrison's songs themselves, which, you know, weren't a lot for the Beatles. But then, of course, the, he had the solo career. Um, but the songs he wrote for the Beatles, I think, are just fantastic. And, and uh, you know, everybody talks about I mean, I don't know if people know, but to this day, when you stream the Beatles, you, you know, you go to one of those streaming services and, and they tell you which songs are the, are the top 10 streaming songs. The top two are always George Harrison songs. It's which basically, are? here comes the sun, number one, and something, number two, are the two top streamed Beatles songs. And they just happen to be George Harrison songs. How I had no that? idea. Yeah. I had no idea about that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that now the the one of the best kept secrets in rock and roll has been revealed. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, you know, I'm I'm actually interested in getting to thinking with you in a bit about what drew Dylan to the Beatles. Obviously, being drawn to the Beatles is sort of being it's like being drawn to water, I suppose particularly in the era where Dylan was drawn to them. Um, but what particularly attracted Dylan to George Harrison as um, the Beatle who he certainly seems to have had the closest friendship with and as a musical collaborator for multiple decades of uh, musical friendship as well. Um, but maybe take us back to maybe uh, uh, some of the legends of the genre of famous rock and roll meetings, something we know, something we don't know. How did these artists uh, collide, convene, otherwise commune in order to uh, have this, uh, this dance of the ages, Dylan and the Beatles? Right. And we have to remember and it's, it's hard to really perhaps grasp this because we don't have anything like this and we haven't had anything like this since the 1960s, how towering the Beatles and Bob Dylan were 
musically and culturally over that decade. I mean, they were, you know, the titans of popular music and by extension, the, the entire counterculture. So they, they both arrive on the scene kind of around the same time, which is really interesting. Um, and <clears throat> when, you know, the Beatles, when Dylan first heard the Beatles on the radio, which would have been in the summer or fall of 1963 with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, what he heard was not something new. What he heard was his own roots because what a lot of people don't know about Bob Dylan, people think of him, at least in, in his early years, as, as a folk singer and a, a writer of folk songs. He but was in fact, Bobby V's he, uh, piano player, right? <clears throat> Before all that, he in high school, he had rock and roll bands, <laughs> the Golden Chords and uh, was, was the name of one of his bands. And, and he would play, uh, play gigs at high school gigs and, and dances. And his in his uh, high school yearbook, the part where it said, you know, what his ambition was, it was to join Little Richard's band. I mean, Dylan. <clears throat> A lot, of, and another thing that people don't know is one of his very first recordings, which didn't wind up on an album until years later, one of the collect collection albums of the uh, bootleg series. One of one of Dylan's very first recorded songs was a rock and roll song called "Mixed Up Confusion." You know, people think Dylan went electric in 1964, 1965 at Newport and on uh, the one side of bringing it all back home, but Dylan went electric at the very beginning, you know, and then, and then he veered off for whatever reasons in, into largely into folk music and folk protest music. But his roots were the same musical roots as the Beatles who live in, grew up in Liverpool in England, which is the most, um, at least then, uh, cosmopolitan of cities in England in terms of, especially in terms of American culture, just because of the history of it being a port city and, um, and a military port. So, so the Beatles, you know, were, were totally tuned into Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly and uh, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, the same as Dylan. So, so, so they all had this very similar, uh, you know, deep musical roots uh, at, the, at the very beginning. So when Dylan heard the Beatles, in a sense, reviving this music, because, the, because rock and roll music by 1958, 59 was sort of like dying out. It was almost like a fad that, and everybody thought it was over. And then it got turned very white bread artists like Pat Boone and Fabian and did watered down versions of, of rock and roll music. And, and personally, a lot of the, the main rock and roll people, Elvis went into the army and then started making bad movies. And, and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis had, had problems in their 
personal life, which which brought them um, head to head with the law. And so, so they were all derailed. The Beatles kind of picked that up in England and then fed it back to America. So Dylan hears this and he's like, wow, that's great. I can do this. This is my music. At the same time, what happens is, uh, is Dylan himself is laying down an entirely new way of songwriting on his uh, second album, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan, where he writes his own songs. They're not traditional folk songs as was his first album almost entirely consisted of. But Dylan's writing his own songs, he's writing political songs, and he's writing poetic songs. So George Harrison, it just happened that he was the first one to really get a copy of Freewheeling and listen to it. And, and uh, again, this is in 1963, uh, says, hey guys, listen to this and puts Freewheeling on. And you could just imagine like they're digging it, but you know, John Lennon is kind of like looking down at his shoes because it's like, oh no. <laughs> What do I do? Because here he was like the great, the great songwriter of new rock and roll, but he knows that what he's writing does not compare with what Bob Dylan is writing. To his credit, he, he takes up the challenge and over the next few years, he um, in, in many various ways changes his approach, sometimes almost imitating Bob Dylan um, other times just building upon what, what Dylan did and, and trying to write about more serious stuff than what their early stuff was, which was, you know, teenage love songs and dance songs. And, you know, that's what pop music was at the time. So there's a moment where Dylan hears, I want to hold your hand. I think he's in a car in Colorado and says something like everything's changed, you know, from here on out, everything's changed. But what you're saying is that he's saying everything's changed, but the old is made new again, because this is basically the music that turned him on to begin with. This is that sort of pure rock and roll. But then Dylan takes a direction, which is, um, you know, this is a guy who avoided choruses, who avoided harmonies who definitely plays with the syncopation and the tempo and, uh, you know, is never particularly interested uh, in tuning the guitar. He's um, not interested in doing music the same way twice. His compositions become a template for whatever else is going to follow. Certainly, um, you know, in the recent, in recent decades, but it, it, that restlessness Whereas the Beatles sort of become the the um, the the template for professional pop music that goes deep and is incredibly musical, and the collaboration with George Martin. So, so do you see this as sort of a a fork in the road where they meet, blow each other's minds, and then go in opposite directions? Or is it kind of a, an interweaving where 
they're kind of meeting, separating, meeting, separating. And what in all of this is George Harrison, who apparently is the, the matchmaker, right? Uh, on some level. Right. Does George have a special role in this? Uh, I, I called it a dance before. I guess I'll call it a dance again in this in this dance of the Titans of the musical Titans. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, they, you know, they met, they influenced each other. They clearly had their own identity. So it's not like they wound up doing the same thing by any stretch. And, and you really described very well the many ways that they were different and, and in their basic characteristics. But, um, but I think what happens is, I mean, first of all, there's only one Bob Dylan and there's four Beatles. So that, that, that's very different. And not until very late in both, uh, you know, George's and Bob Dylan's career will, will they be in a band together, but we'll, we'll get to that mm -hmm. later. Um, you know, what happens is, yes, so, that, so they are aware of what's going on with each other. They, um, they get to know each other. You know, there, there's the, the very famous um, story about how in August 1964, the Beatles play a show at Forest Hills Tennis Stadium in Queens, New York, and then they, um, and they're staying at the Delmonico Monaco Hotel in Manhattan, and Dylan's invited to come by, and, 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 and he stops in uh, with, uh, I guess, the journalist Al Aronowitz made the shittick between them, and uh, at, at, this very famous juncture, uh, Dylan says, you know, he pulls out a bag of weed and 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 starts rolling joints. And um, the Beatles had actually had very little to no experience with this before. <laughs> they say that like when a joint was passed to Ringo, he he just act, sat there and smoked the whole thing. He did he didn't know <laughs> for the next fifty years. <laughs> he didn't know you're supposed to pass it to the just to you know inhale and then pass it along. He just. Uh, <laughs> He bogarted the joint, I guess. That's the, right. The, yeah. the term. They so, knew pills, though. They had certainly, oh, they yeah. must have, they they really, I mean, and Dylan came to pills later, meaning it was probably, that's, you know, Dylan got into amphetamines and, you know, all kinds of this business. And But the Beatles had, you know, that's how they stayed awake for those gigs, presumably, in Hamburg well, and so on. In Hamburg, yes, they were, you know, they were just fed Preludin, which um, wow. was was very widespread in Germany, actually, since uh, World War II, uh, mm. basically the the entire German army and to a large extent, the German nation was was fed uh, these amphetamine like drugs. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And because the Beatles, did, you know, were playing eight, eight hour, 10 hour gigs all night into into the morning so they right. would just keep popping these pills to keep going so yeah so they were certainly aware of drugs as we say um but you know this this kind of thing and and they took to the marijuana i should say uh you know and and they made they talked they talked about this openly especially i i think paul mccartney has said you know since that day in that hotel he's been high every single day of his life yeah um and uh you know john lennon veered off into harder drugs they all had a period of time when they were 
uh, taking LSD or dropping acid, I guess as we say, or they say. Um, so anyway, they share all that. Um, you know, they're, they're not competing because they're, they're doing things that are complementary or different enough, but they're listening to each other all the time. So that, um, so as I said, you know, so John Lennon could write a song like, you've got to hide your love away, which it seems he's almost even doing a Dylan imitation in his vocal practically. Um, and, uh, but they're also, you know, sometimes they hear each other and, and they say, well, you know, I'm gonna go the opposite way. The, the very famous um, example given is after Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, which, you know, was the, the uh, quintessential, the epitome of the blooming of psychedelia. Dylan's response to that, not that he wasn't just listening to his own muse, because I'm sure he was, but rather than respond in a similar way with psychedelia, Dylan's next album is John Wesley Harding, right. which was totally acoustic, quiet, country, rootsy, non as 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 not psychedelic as you can get uh we know that um eric clapton who you referenced earlier i'm i'm not an eric clapton fan um particularly particularly these days um but i'm right um, there with you know, you. eric clapton I, yeah okay not not a <laughs> fan right. of his i never was a fan of his yeah. music or his playing. i mean i i derek and the dominoes is has has meant a lot to me over the years but but uh, at any rate well that'll that'll have to be a different conversation on this one what i was thinking was um eric clapton being one of uh not a small number of uh uh iconic or soon to be iconic rock stars who traveled out to visit the band and said that the band had changed everything pete townsend talked about the band changing everything eric clapton talked about the band changing everything was george harrison someone who said that the band changed everything as well did, did george Absolutely. harrison and the band intersect mm -hmm. totally so so what happens is you know there there was a there's attempts i think mccartney and dylan didn't really have much to share personally there was an attempt to you know get the meeting of the minds between Lennon and Dylan, but but it was too much of a competition. I, I think very much more on Lennon's part. I think he just was intimidated and um, and uh, felt the competition too much. Um, but it was different with George Harrison, who was a probably the you know the biggest fan of Bob Dylan's in the in the Beatles. He genuinely was a fan who who would eventually become somebody who, you know, if you go back, go on YouTube and watch any interview with George Harrison from the late 60s on for the rest of his life, he always quotes Bob Dylan. He quotes Bob Dylan like people quote scripture. He right. always has a Dylan quote. Um, so, so they have a connection. And, and I think the connection is in part because they both were, were serious, profound people and believed that, that they could be serious and profound through their music. And I, and I don't know that, that the others were, were quite at that deep, profound 
I don't want to say level because I don't want to, you know, pit one against the other. But it, but it's just something that that George Harrison and Bob Dylan shared. In terms of what they shared, I mean, much later, Dylan, I remember reading about him saying that no one compares to Paul McCartney. There's a quote out there where Dylan says, he's the God, he's, no one can touch him. I couldn't tell if that was tongue in cheek or not. I couldn't tell if, you know, he really felt that way. But it does seem that musically, you know, George Harrison uh, keeps, keeps coming up. Um, the, the affinities keep uh, emerging. I'm wondering, as we, as we think about the musical piece, and we certainly have to get to when the family finally comes together with the Wilburys, and it sort of was ingrained in my rock and roll consciousness that George Harrison, you know, the silent beetle, he was the spiritual beetle. He was the mystical beetle. He was the beetle who, you know, sort of introduced the West to the East and was a seeker. First of all, you're the best person to ask, was he a spiritual seeker? Is this actually definitive? How much of this is, you know, um, part of the, that four cards in a deck of the Beatles, which are, they're so colorful and amazing and have such uh, profound characters that just sort of pop out of the shell, you know? Um, but was George Harrison someone who truly was a seeker of truth, religious truth, spiritual truth? How did he define that? How did he define music's role in that? And then in thinking about that, like to then turn to sort of where that meets or doesn't meet Dylan's own potential self-perception of those kinds of issues. I think it's just a fascinating topic. I'm sure we're going to get a lot about this in the book, but if you, whatever you're willing to share now. Sure. I mean, the answer to your question about George Harrison is yes, absolutely. Um, as, as being a seeker when, although the door that opened for him at first was Indian music mm. and um you know, he heard literally on the set of um, the movie Help, he heard he heard some sitar music. There was a scene where there was a, a group of Indian musicians playing and 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 that kind of woke up his ears. And then um, supposedly through hanging out with David Crosby of the birds, he, Crosby was getting into Indian music and George heard a little more that way. And, and he, he loved what he heard musically. Um, and within a short period of time, you know, picked up sitar was, he added the sitar uh, to John Lennon's song, um, Norwegian Wood most famously was the first time you heard sitar on, on a Western, you know, rock album. And, um, and then he got deeper and deeper into the music. He eventually uh, meets Ravi Shankar and gets tutelage from Shankar and even goes to India. And in getting into the music and, and in working with Ravi Shankar, you know, Shankar makes the point to him that this doesn't exist in, in a vacuum, that, that it's all part of a greater system. And so then he learns about meditation and he learns about yoga and he learns about basic Hindu concepts. And, and he's very drawn to all these things, so much so that he gets the, the, his bandmates 
involved in it to to various right. extents, but but to si- significant extent that they they all become in different ways acolytes of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi for a while at least, and they all go to India, um, and and stay for for different amounts of times. But you know Harrison and Lenin, the two who are the most into it, stay for like three months at uh, the Maharishi's um, temple in Rishikesh. So, um, and Harrison continues on, uh, both musically, um, as do the Beatles, but, but with the spirituality to, to a great extent and really starts incorporating it, not, not only musically, but, but into his lyrics, which, um, I mean, the album All Things Must Pass is, it's almost like Hinduism 101 in a way. He touches right. on so many of the, the basic concepts of, reincarnation and chanting um, and meditation. And maybe that also br- brings me around a bit too, because you asked earlier about his uh, connection with the band. Sure. So one, what I neglected to say is that George Harrison in around 1968 goes to Woodstock where Dylan and the band are leaving. Oh, interesting, just a bit before that, you know, both Bob Dylan and the Beatles quit performing within months of each other in the summer of 1966. Mm. Dylan, May 1966, is supposedly has a motorcycle accident and goes off the road and, and does not tour for years or even play concerts. And the Beatles, August 66, that's it. They've had it. They're done. And they never tour again. They, they never even play a public concert again, you know, unless you count the, the rooftop, which, you know, Nobody bought tickets to. Right. Nobody was even knew it was. George didn't happen. want to go on the roof. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So anyway, where are we now? I'm, uh... Where where we are is that um, I was thinking while you were talking about all things must pass as being Hinduism 101, and what a beautiful, kind, epic album that is and thinking about that in comparison to an album like saved or um i mean i'm a big fan of slow train coming but mm-hmm. you know the not the first side more than the second side and the harshness of dylan's christianity evangelical christianity 101 right so you can look to dylan for all variety of christian or judeo-christian or some version monotheistic what have you um but um the newly religious newly religiously inclined or engaged album is there something to the fact that dylan chooses chooses or is chosen by i guess a hard edge sort of fundamentalist take versus George Harrison, how they get to these, I don't know, they're witnesses, they're testaments, really. I don't think Dylan would describe his, if he talked about it, which he doesn't, but he was testifying. I mean, he was testifying from the stage. Mm-hmm. Was George Harrison imagining himself in releasing this incredible album as proselytizing? Was he opening up a avenue to bring some sort of 
transcendent consciousness, knowing he was, you know, he was a beetle. I mean, he was one of the most famous people in the world. Right. What, 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 what was his religious or spiritual role in those, in that album? And, and, and where do you place that sort of in context of Dylan or maybe other rock stars who kind of see the light? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, and I think what happens is in a, in a funny way, George Harrison almost like set, lays down the template for what later will happen with Bob Dylan in that, um, in that, yes, I mean, all things must pass. And, and the follow-up album in particular, uh, living in the material world are infused with Eastern spirituality and messages and was not always well received there at the times people felt some people felt that you know he was kind of a scold that that he was uh, holier than thou that you know they didn't need to be lectured about these things it, it didn't always go over well i mean i think probably for the majority of people it did but there was a significant number of critics or you know fans who who were turned off by what they may have seen as as being proselytized uh to and so in a funny way you know th this is happening in from 1970 to 1974 when he finally goes on tour and although he didn't you know preach the way Dylan literally preached on his uh um so-called well, let's call them the gospel tour. Um, uh, right. But, but, it, but it was similar and they both, there was a backlash to, to both of them too. I want to just go back a little bit to say about all things must pass because there you have such an important meeting again, a concrete collaboration between Bob Dylan and George Harrison. I mean, so here, George Harrison, the Beatles had just split up, really. And, and he has all these great songs that he's been writing for years and that the Beatles didn't record. So he's going to make his solo album full of all these great songs. All Things Must Pass. And what does he do? The very first track, the lead-off song on that album, is a song called I'd Have You Anytime, co-written with Bob Dylan. Almost to me, I, I hear that, I, I think about that as if to say, as if George is saying to the other Beatles, I don't need you, I have Bob Dylan. <laughs> mm. Who needs John Lennon when you have Bob Dylan? And he also, yeah. re he also records um, Dylan's If Not For You, a brand new song. Great uh, version too, yeah. The beautiful version of that yeah. song, one of the first, and um, and and the song, also on that album, behind that locked door, is very much seems to be about his meeting with Dylan and his spending time with Dylan in Woodstock, a, a time during which he also did spend time with the members of the band, and was just blown away by the easygoing nature of being in a band with with people who just love the music and love to play together and and it, at least at that point in the band's career right. 
you know, but he had had that. I mean, I, I, the Beatles were brothers. I mean, they, they seem to have just been like one being with four selves for, for Mm -hmm. those early years. Right. They, they had had that experience. They lived on top of each other. They knew everything about each other. Right. So perhaps this was also sort of seeing in a different form, something that he, you know, certainly fame blew that all apart. I would assume. I think in the later years of the Beatles, when they continued to, to make incredible music, and you know, as we see in the Get Back film, as they still work together beautifully and, and are creative, collaboratively beautiful, it's also you know Paul McCartney kind of, I think, uh, because he had to because it was the only way to get anything done. Paul McCartney kind of you know becomes the leader of the group and 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 pushes not not himself but the group and 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 he addresses this McCartney addresses this right in that movie he talks about I don't want to do this I don't want to be the one telling you what to play and what not to play but somebody has to do this I think yeah. what you see the same thing happening with the band by the mid 1970s and and that what makes them kind of fall apart and, so and I'm, I'm thinking of uh, one of my favorite, you know, later stage Dylan lines is uh, um, I practice a faith that's been long abandoned, ain't no altars on this long and lonesome road from uh, ain't talking. Yeah. And then I think of um, the line from uh, from the first Wilbury's album uh, where they say, uh is maybe the songs it's all right where he says um you'll think of it wonder where i am these days maybe sometime when someone plays purple haze right <laughs> like um and i'm thinking about um this period of the the 70s 80s and onward you know here you have i mean you know there there are very few um i don't know uh, badges of cultural honor greater than being a beetle i mean to to be a Beatle is, it's really just, there, there's really no higher level in, in popular entertainment. Um, I would say spiritual attainment as well, but that's just my take. And then, you know, to be Dylan, well, choose your decade. And, you know, whether it's in 1965 and 66 or 1974 and 75, or I don't know, 2022, um, and yet they still have to get up in the morning. They still have to disappear into their lives. They go through marriages and children and grandchildren. And, you know, both of them are super heavy smokers, you know, smoking probably killed George Harrison. I would guess, um, you know, based on, you know, he, he, emphysema, lung cancer, you know, they're, they are extraordinary stories and just have to, be the dude you know that someone thinks of them when someone plays purple hay so from a perspective of how do you see the wilburys convening as a like looking glass for questions of fame and um camaraderie and having some fun thinking about, you know, the, the, the Beatles in Hamburg and the band in Woodstock and, and then, you know, half of the people die and everyone's a drug addict and 
Eric Clapton gets in the way and on and on and on. And life is a mess. And here they come together in this ridiculously fun, beautiful moment. I don't know. I'm just wondering what you make of that family reunion, considering the gravitas and importance of these artists and what it meant to them, right? To come together at that point when mm, rock and roll, not such a great spot for any of them, really. Right. Right. I mean, there were plenty of comebacks to come, but still. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, unprecedented. And um, sadly, you know, Roy Orbison died very shortly after the first Traveling Wilburys album came out, which, although they made another album, you know, they never performed live together. I don't know if they would have had he lived the second album without Roy Orbison just couldn't quite live up to uh, the first, you know, and even the role of Roy Orbison, you know, the Beatles opened for Roy Orbison on tour in the, in the United Kingdom in uh, 62 or 63. Um, uh, Cause Roy Orbison was huge in England. Eventually what ha- happened was, you know, th- they were the penultimate act and then Orbison would follow them because he, he was the headliner. But the problem was the place just went nuts when the Beatles played. Right. <laughs> so Roy saw that the best thing to do was to switch the order. And even though he was the headliner, he could do his show before the Beatles. And then the Beatles could play and just, you know, it didn't matter what happened after that. It was going to explode. There's, there's also, there's this great anecdote. It's, it sounds apocryphal. I don't really, but I love it. So whatever truth and even something apocryphal yeah. can express a truth. Bring and, it. We're going to take it as truth right now. Okay. Come on. <laughs> so, so they're hanging around the traveling Wilburys who are sure, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, and Jeff Lynn. Uh, you know, they're hanging out, writing songs together, just having a good time. And um, George Harrison uh, walks out of the room to, you know, get a drink or go to the bathroom or something. And Dylan supposedly turns to Tom Petty and says, you know, you know, Tom, he was in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, so that's so loaded. There's so much there. One of the things that's amazing about the Traveling Wilburys, that first album in particular, uh, is is it's a it's an album about middle age, boredom, goofiness, friendship, um, messing around. It's what you do with your friends on a you know an after a lazy afternoon, playing guitar. I mean, they just happen to be, you know some of the most important musicians of their eras. And really it's three generations of musicians, right? Yeah. Cause you've got Roy Orbison, George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynn somewhere, you know, the, 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 the musical artists that everybody loves to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a, there's a, a great drinking game, which I'm sure you played. Who would be the next Wilbury? Who would you put in? Who would, yeah. who would be the next natural fit? 
I've right. got mine, but I want to hear yours. Well, you know, there one. was there was talk at the time of Del Shannon, of um, Del Roger McGuinn, oh, Roger nice. McGuinn, possibly, which you know you that McGuinn may have tilted it too much to the Dylan Petty, you mm. know, because Petty really comes comes out of McGuinn as much as he does at, at, out of Dylan. Um, uh, so I've got know, Johnny would, Cash. I've got Johnny Cash as as being a potential. That's a great that's a great one because yeah. there you've got another guy on Mount Rushmore right. with a unique, totally he voice and approach and history of his own, which is equal to the other. So I, I like that one. Now you mentioned the birds. Um when we were when we were corresponding, just getting ready to get together, you mentioned something that I had never thought of that now makes complete and total sense hmm. about the place where Dylan and the Beatles meet is the birds. Totally. Musically. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, and Roger McGuinn, of course, is another one who really um, he becomes a very devout Christian, uh, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm, but say mm-hmm. more about that. Well, you know. I think the birds very self-consciously were formed, even, even though they came, most of them came out of folk music and maybe some country music, they very consciously were formed as a Beatles-like group, even down to their name, even with the B, the letter B, and right. birds right. misspelled, you know, like Beatles. Yeah. It's not B-E-E, <laughs> it's B-E-A, birds with a Y. So, you you know, clearly this was going to be the American Beatles. Um, Yet they wind up, of course, uh, being famous for their hits with Bob Dylan songs with Mr. Tambourine Man. I mean, between Peter, Paul and Mary and and the birds, they're as much responsible for for Dylan's fame and fortune in in those early years in the 60s as Dylan himself because they're taking his songs and bringing them to the top 10, you know, in the top five, which, which Dylan very rarely, you know, maybe only twice did around that time. So you have these, uh, these uh, amazing musical conversations that take place over decades. Is there evidence of, um, of the friendship between Dylan and George Harrison and, and uh, you know, anything that's come to light, anything that you point to or anything that you speculate up, speculate about in terms of um, how their relationship influenced them and sort of yeah. provided for them a, a vehicle for, for, for important parts well, of the meaning. You know, I think they both supported each other, certainly in the 1970s, as, as you referred to earlier, which, you know, was early in the 70s was kind of an iffy proposition for the two of them. They, they, yeah. they, they are coming off either splitting up of the Beatles and Dylan has really been a recluse since 1966, never performed. And, you know, come 1971, no Beatle has performed on a, on a concert stage, really, since the, since, like I say, since 66, and then since the, you know, the, the rooftop concert, but then George Harrison plans, you know, with Ravi Shankar has this idea to do a benefit concert for Bangladesh. 
and to call upon his musical friends. And this is at a time, you know, when Dylan has no desire to be in the public eye, but George calls on Dylan and says, you know, would you come and sing some songs? And Dylan wavers. It's like, yes, but no, it's not really my scene. And, uh, you know, we get a sense from, from the band, from the song Stage Fright, that Dylan was suffering from stage fright at the time. And as the story goes, George Harrison really wasn't sure if Dylan, e even, even the day of in the rehearsals, Dylan was still saying, I don't know if I can do this. And, you know, George was just encouraging him, but didn't know until that moment in, this, in the set list when Dylan was supposed to come out and do his set, if he would come. And he did. We also, so I, I, I think, you know, and then as a result, you know, it, it goes pretty well for Dylan. And, and in a short period of time, within a few years, Dylan regroups with the band, goes out on tour for two months, you know, a tour like, like hadn't been seen before, full of, you know, arenas and stadiums and, and you know, every night. Uh, within a few months after that, George Harrison does his, the first Beatles tour, right. solo Beatles tour in 1974 on the heels of the Dark Horse album. Uh, so, you know, th they're so supportive of each other and, and playing off each other. And it extends through something I saw in Tulsa at the Bob Dylan Center, which really blew oh, me away. Okay. There, you know, there's display cases of all kinds of correspondence and Dylan's letters, but, but there's just several display cases of correspondence from the Beatles to Bob Dylan. Love it, it includes, you know, holiday cards from Paul and John uh, and maybe Ringo to Dylan. Um, but in particular, a number of either both holiday cards or just letters um, that George Harrison writes to Dylan. Um, and and th this is in mostly in the, uh, the late 80s or early 90s. Hmm. And every, every card or letter that George Harrison writes to Bob Dylan has some kind, Harrison extends his awareness of Bob Dylan's Jewishness to the point mm -hmm. of writing the word shalom on the card to the, to, you know, George Harrison illustrates all of his cards to having Star of David on every card. Um, you know, so, which I think as much as anything is suggestive of their relationship, of how George understood Dylan, and maybe how we should understand Dylan at that mm. time. Because uh, maybe that was what do you make of it? So what do you make of it? Yeah, what do you make of it? Either George had no idea what really was going on with Bob Dylan, or George knew, you know, certainly more than we've ever known. Um, there's even one of these notes or, or letters, again, I believe from the late 80s or early 90s, where George sends love to Sarah and the children and the grandchildren. Now, you know, Dylan, everybody knows that, that Dylan and Sarah split up in the mid to late 1970s. Yet, what does George know? 
did Dylan and Sarah actually continue to have some kind of relationship to the point that it would be appropriate for George to say love to Sarah in yeah. 1989 and 1991. It's that's that's also classic Dylan, you know, reveal, not reveal. It's so obvious that it can't be possible, right? With this guy who we know on the one hand almost nothing about, but do we know everything? And you know, and here he is, you know, sharing private correspondence from I'm sure Dylan did not go through every postcard and letter. But um, cursed is the is the staff person who presents something that Dylan gets light of. I mean, you know, it, for, for any, anybody that I know that's worked in Dylan or been in the band, you know, y- you just know that if you betray even the concept of breaking into the inner circle, you're done. I mean, you're out, you know, you're out right. the same day. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. When I think about... Um, when I think about Dylan and George Harrison uh, and sort of the ways that uh, they are peers and colleagues so they can poke fun at each other and they can also know the sort of private elements in a way that probably very few people on earth could, right? Hmm. How many people could George Harrison trust, let alone someone who God forbid is going to break into his house and try to stab him and his wife to death, right? Hmm. Or someone who's going to, you know, come up with a gun to Woodstock as, as someone did, you know, when Dylan was living there and, and caused him to, to move maybe back to the city and then eventually out to Malibu. So, you know, this, um, this friendship has to be as normal as possible in order for them to have some semblance of, um, of a human life. They are, they are gods to millions of people. Right. Um, I mean, I like to think that I wouldn't say something stupid and embarrassing either one of them in the off chance, you know, that I were to encounter that I would try to, you know, but it's impossible. I mean, that, that, that's just a different level of, of operations. Again, it reminds me of the Wilbury uh, cohort who have this private space where they can just be boys, basically, right? Men, boys, middle-aged men. Um, so as you dug into the, to the life of George Harrison, um, is there a particular story that you'd care to share a a particular surprise a particular discovery? Maybe you could leave the discovery for the book, but tell us if there's something about this guy that you, as you, as you got close to him, as you got friendly with him, right. Um, what, what did he reveal to you that you didn't know before? Well, there's a couple of things to say about that. Number one is my book is not a biography. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really talk a lot about his life, but of course it's there. And of course I have read every single thing there is to read about George Harrison's life. But yeah. What I'm putting on the page is mostly, it's really focused to, a, to the greatest extent on the music and, and his musical impact on the Beatles, outside of the Beatles, on the whole world of rock music and his cultural and spiritual impact. Mm. Um, You know, so it's hard to say about, you know, the surprises. I mean, I'm surprised every day when I listen deeper and deeper to to Beatles music and to George's solo music and, and to hear stuff that I didn't hear the day before or ever before. 
Right. Um, so I guess, you know, it's best to leave it at that. Sure. Tell us again the title of the book, when it's coming out, and anything we need to know about where to find your writing, what you're interested in, how to keep track, because um, if, if, if the friends out there are like me, uh, they're just going to get tremendous pleasure from uh, staying in touch with your work. So what are the best ways to do that? And just a, another uh, very early but very important plug for the book. Thanks. So, so the George Harrison book, at least as of now, and this could change, right. but the working title is Within You, Without You, Listening to George Harrison. You know, and, and I particularly, that subtitle I wanted because I want to differentiate it from a biography. Sure. In terms of my own work, unfortunately, it's kind of scattered all over the place, but <laughs> probably, you know, the best of, of a bad situation is a website I have called rogavoyreport.com. We'll put that in the and, notes too. Yeah. And, and so, and from there, if you go to my bio, you can um, get a link to my Substack, which is called Reflections and Illuminations, and uh, which I have not been um, prolific with since I've been working on the book. And as soon as the book is done, I, I will gear yeah. that back up again. Um, so, you know, and I'm a regular contributor, contributor to the forward at forward.com. Um, I've got articles going in there almost on a weekly basis. And a, and, and a great one, most recent to the this conversation on George Carlin, yeah. uh, asking the question if George Carlin was a prophet. I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but I vote yes. Hmm. I, I vote yes. And I heard um, excerpts of, of interviews he had done with Terry Gross recently that they put up again. What a fascinating character um i i would put him in the wilburys as well i would put george carl i would put george carlin in the wilburys well if it's, they were... it's, it's very interesting because obviously george carlin is a direct descendant of lenny bruce i mean Absolutely. literally literally when lenny bruce got arrested george george carlin got arrested right next to him yes and they, they they were both in the car to, the cop car together being taken to the station so, so, so there is that connection. And then you get the Dylan connection because Dylan famously, or maybe not so famously, right. wrote a song, an ode to Lenny Bruce called Lenny Bruce. He was the brother was, that you never had. Yeah. Dylan yeah. says about Lenny Bruce. And I, I think Carlin said the same thing, you know, and in the rankings of the greatest comedians, you know, you probably have Richard Pryor, George yeah. Carlin, Eddie Murphy, and Lenny Bruce are probably your, you know, they may be your top four, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and George Carlin, who gets a big break from Flip Wilson's show. I mean, a real barrier breaker. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Seth, I mean, we could go on for a long time, but, you know, you've got to go, you've got to go finish your book. Right. And um, what a pleasure. Uh, I just think that of, of all the things to talk about, there's a, there's a tribe of people in the world who can talk about music and musicians endlessly. It doesn't even matter. I could hear these stories a thousand times, and, uh, but it's especially interesting and inspiring to hear it from someone who really applies, you know, 
big ears and a big heart to, to music and culture. So thanks for sharing some of that with us here and uh, look forward to uh, look forward to the book and look forward to uh, speaking again on a happy occasion soon. Thanks, Stephen. This has been great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Great and, to uh, see you. Let's talk soon. Okay. Be well. Thank Thanks, Seth. Bye-bye. This has been episode five of season three of Bob Dylan about man and God-in-law within you, without you, the tale of Bob Dylan and George Harrison. Thank you, Seth Rogovoy, for bringing us within one of rock and roll's most legendary friendships. I invite you to visit mangodlaw.com for more about this podcast, upcoming events, and even an excerpt from the book about man and God-in-law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, which is available now to purchase and peruse. And speaking of books, finally, we will be dedicating the next two episodes to comparing and contrasting the work of two almost contemporaries who lived and loved to write. Bob Dylan, of course, and the great American novelist Philip Roth. Look for upcoming episodes wherever you are listening now, and be sure to subscribe and rate this show when you do. It really helps this project grow. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our podcasts for music lovers at pantheonpodcasts.com. I am your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Read the book, tell me what you think, share a review, and I will know how we're doing. Thanks for coming, and see you soon. Mm, to do it, 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 to do it right. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.